your methodology, your process, it's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. And if it's not helping you deliver on your goals, then you need to change it. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. In this podcast, we feature the best mental models, tools, techniques, and secrets for product managers and product marketers, innovators, founders, anyone who's trying to create value in the world, delivering solutions to problems that need solving. And in this podcast, we'll give you insights and approaches to up your game, accelerate your career, and most importantly, get more value to market faster. This is episode number 322. So what are your goals? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most, if not all, product organizations have at least these three big overarching goals, irrespective of the product, the space, or the nature of the business. Deliver great value to our customers. Do it quickly, efficiently, and with high quality, and do it better over time. A product organization that achieves those goals is much more likely to be successful. Now, what practices help us achieve these goals? Well, in the software world, we found that an agile approach to development is often good for this. What do I mean by agile? Well, I mean focusing the team on the most important thing they can work on right now and making sure that thing gets finished to a done-done state before starting on the next thing. How do we decide on the most important thing, by the way? Well, I've discussed that before in some articles that I have on the blog. I'll put some links to those in the show notes. I'm going to take this idea that we know how to prioritize as a given for this episode and as usual, I'll provide links to those articles and all the other resources I mention or even just allude to in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 322. Now, as a side effect of those two practices, you end up only predicting a short time into the future because you're only working on the most important thing and you're kind of ignoring everything else for the moment. But this is good because prediction is impossible. I have an article about that too. There's a link in the show notes. But more importantly, the future changes on its way to us and we have to be able to respond to those changes and then the final thing we need to do which too often we forget about or just let happen is to continue learning constantly which there is yet another article about now the way i described agile work on the most valuable thing until it's done repeat it should be clear how it helps achieve the goals i listed at the beginning we're always working on the most important thing at any time and we're always going as fast as we can and then we're continuing to learn and get better at it but the reality is that Agile is embodied in real methodologies like Scrum and SAFE and extreme programming. And that usually means actual rules, actual activities you're supposed to do to achieve being Agile. My simple explanation is too simple for some people. They want more structure than that. But remember, whatever the methodology and its rules, its point is to help you achieve your goals. It must be in service to the goals. You know, our methodologies, our templates, our practices are all just means to an end. So let's come to an agreement on what our end goals are, like I did above, and only then talk about the best ways to achieve those goals. Look at what your real goals are. Are your processes helping you achieve those goals, or are they hindering you on achieving those goals? And if they're not helping, you need to change them. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, because it sometimes happens that organizations start to focus on doing a good job of the methodology instead of doing a good job of achieving the goals using the methodology. They lose focus on the goals the methodology is meant to be enabling. Now, I think there's a fundamental clue in the way people have ended up talking about these agile methodologies that kind of shows the danger. 
They call the activities you do in Scrum or whatever methodology you're talking about, they call them ceremonies. Now, I'm sure that this term was originally used ironically, but some people, and there are always these people, have valorized the ceremonies, the methodology, over the actual target goals, which is to have good outcomes to achieve the things I listed in the beginning, good value to customers quickly, etc. The term ceremonies kind of makes it sound like a religion. There are people for whom the methodology itself becomes their North Star, and they become the true devotees. And because they care, they're often the ones who take over the organization's and proselytize for the methodology, and as a result, the ceremonies become the really important part as opposed to the goals. This sometimes, or often, results in the use of the methodology becoming kind of zealous and dogmatic. This doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot. And it doesn't just happen with methodologies. It happens all the time with all kinds of things. I was watching some ballroom dancing on video yesterday, and you can see it in the faces that the dancers make. Their faces, which are kind of now pro forma, are based on the idea that the dancers are excited and having fun with each other and showing off their skill. But truly, at the high level of ballroom dancing, they kind of look like insane monsters when they make their ballroom dancer faces. Now, if you saw people making those faces in real life, even if they were excited and having a great time, you might wonder if there was something wrong with them. But it's not only normal in ballroom dancing, it's required. If you look like a normal person having fun while competing in ballroom dancing, you will lose your competition. Just as if you successfully get high quality and high value to market fast, but you aren't doing your scrums right or whatever it might be, the agilists will look at you askance. Now, I don't know if there are agile competitions the way there's ballroom dance competitions, but if there were, you can be sure that the outcome, high quality, high value fast, would not be the major judging criteria because that's not the type of people that judge competitions. To sum it up, your methodologies and processes should not be sacred. If you treat them as sacred, but you're not achieving your goals, you're not going to be successful. And there's a few things you can do today to take a look at where you are in this situation. First of all, be sure you articulate your goals as a product organization. It's likely they'll be similar to what I listed above. Then assess your methodology and your process as it's practiced. Is it helping you achieve those goals or is it hindering you? And if your methodology or process is hindering you, what's one change you can make immediately to align it better to your goals? you're probably going to have to make these changes incrementally. Now, I mentioned above the idea that prediction is hard, and I love this phrase, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And to close out, I want to give you a little thought experiment, and I'll finish with a useful technique and a book recommendation to sort of get us the bad taste of agile ceremonies out of our mouth, maybe. In the show notes, I'll put a link to one more article, this one about prediction, that has one of my favorite stories of failure that I got from Nicholas Nassim Taleb. So this little thought experiment arose out of a Twitter conversation the other day. Somebody asked a question about what kind of high-fidelity metric he could use to benchmark or compare his product development teams. Now, the problem there is the phrase high-fidelity, because it makes us think like, oh, I want to know the exact answer. I want to be able to numerically rank people really clearly. So I thought, well, let's think about something that's much more predictable. Who's going to win the World Series? Which Major League Baseball team will win the World Series? This should be a much more predictable answer. I should be able to get be much closer to the right answer. Because let's think a little bit about Major League Baseball teams. We know the exact performance so far, it's about 30 weeks of game so far, of each of the 32 teams. We know in detail the performance of each individual member of those teams. We may know a few of the teams that don't have a chance to get into the playoffs. We 100% know the rules they're playing under and the laws of physics apply to the game of baseball so we can trust that gravity will always be working. 
The World Series starts on October 22nd. The playoffs start on October 1st. I'm recording this on September the 12th, 2019. Six weeks until the World Series starts, roughly two weeks before the playoffs start. As of today, despite the fact that we know everything about all the performance of these teams so far, as of today, only one team has clinched their playoff berth, and there's at least 12 teams that are still in the running for a playoff spot. So there's 12 teams potentially that could go to the World Series. Only one of those 12 teams could win the World Series. But right now, even though we know all that data, we don't even know for sure which teams will be in the playoff in 16 days, much less who will win the World Series. Now, I think of the year that the San Francisco Giants, one of the years the San Francisco Giants won the World Series, they never led their division until the last day. They didn't even win their division. They came in as a, as a wild card, meaning also they didn't win their division, but they came in second, and they had the best of the teams that were in second place. They were not expected to do well, so they ended up sweeping the World Series. It was kind of amazing, not predictable, even though we had all this data. So that's the status of our ability to rank and predict Major League Baseball teams. Now, if you go with the rubric that the World Series winner is the best team in baseball, well, we clearly can't make that determination, even though we only have about six weeks left in the season. Now, let's consider our poor dev teams. We don't have anything like the data we have for a Major League Baseball team or a player. And the laws of physics don't apply to their work. So even if we had a metric for the team, which we don't, using it to predict future performance would really be foolhardy. So what are we to do? What if we want to do a little bit of prediction at least, or a little bit of comparing? Well, I think the thing to do, or one thing to do, is to remove the high fidelity requirement. Meaning, let's see if we can get a general qualitative sense of how we might rank our teams or understand how good our teams are. We may not really want to rank them. So for example, let's think about this for baseball. One thing we can say about any major league baseball team is that they'll consistently beat any college baseball team. That's a lo-fi argument, but it's super true and useful enough that we don't even really need to run the experiment, even though it does get run every year. There's some baseball series that are pros against the college teams. The pros win. So what's an equivalent kind of lo-fi metric for our dev teams? A lo-fi metric, but one that's still useful. So I came up with a couple. How about they consistently deliver innovative work when presented with a well-defined market problem by product management? Some teams can do that. Some teams can't. The better teams can or the team is open to discussing different ways of addressing a requirement and will change course to create a higher value solution. Or the team is consistently working to improve its skills, processes, and responsiveness so they can get value to market faster. Or the team is considered a benchmark by the rest of the organization and has been asked to share their secrets and approach by other ambitious teams in the org. So that's four or five different qualitative metrics you can ask about your team get some kind of an answer. It may be a really rough answer. It may be very intuitive, but you can get some kind of an answer. And you can even at that point start to think about, well, which of my teams are the ones that are considered benchmarks and which are the ones that need to be learning from the benchmark teams? Or which of my teams are delivering really innovative stuff and maybe I can have my other teams emulate them in some way. Now, one thing about this type of metric, and this is true for all these different kinds of metrics, anytime you're measuring human beings, is that some teams are going to probably be good at some of these and not at others. It may be that the team that is the most innovative has the sloppiest processes. It may be that the team that really has tight processes does a great job of delivering, but isn't as innovative, right? There's, these kinds of trade-offs always happen. The point is, look for a lo-fi 
metric if you can't find a high fidelity metric. And the reality is you almost never can find a high fidelity metric in a people type of situation. Let me talk about two more points. The first is when you're facing a question like this one, how do I got a hi-fi metric of my teams? Just as an example, it's often useful to look for examples or counterexamples from other domains. So for example, this person said, I want to know something about my teams. And I immediately thought of, well, what are some other teams? And it's baseball season getting toward the end. And I thought, well, what about major league baseball teams? Can I do a hi-fi metric of them? That, it, that will give me predictive power. And I want to be able to predict something with that metric. I immediately came up with Major League Baseball teams, and I came up with this whole little thought experiment. The second thing that I want to recommend is Douglas Hubbard's How to Measure Anything. It's a book. He really convinces you that you really can measure anything, but you have to understand that you might not get as accurate as you'd like. He says, if a metric is useful for making a business decision, you can measure it. But the level of uncertainty may be very high. There's actually a third thing that I always like to mention. There's a famous quote, which is wrong, from Peter Drucker. And I'm not going to use that quote. I don't want it in your ears. I'm going to say what, he, what Peter Drucker really said. He said, what's measured improves. This he meant as a warning. When you start to measure something, particularly in a human type of situation, like a, a business type of measurement, then people naturally start to move to improve that measurement to make it go up or make it go down. It depends on the measurement, which, which direction it's going to go. The organization will start moving toward optimizing that measurement. This can be okay. If, the, if what you're measuring is revenue, then the organization is going to move toward improving revenue. And that's a really good thing, although it's actually really hard to do that because revenue is a really lagging indicator. But if you start to measure the wrong thing, and people start to optimize it, that can result in really bad outcomes for the business. And that was what Peter Drucker was talking about. Now, unfortunately, some people have taken this warning wrong and tried to say, well, if you, that you have to be able to measure something to be able to really manage it. That is not true. That's not what Peter Drucker meant. And I think that's another place where this kind of question can come from. I want a high fidelity metric for my team because there's this idea that, oh, I can't manage my teams if I don't have a high fidelity metric. Well, the fact is you can. If you have a low fidelity metric, you might be able to do just as much managing and actually probably manage better than if you try to find some hi-fi metric that actually is going to direct your team to improve something that isn't actually in the best interest of the business. I hope you enjoyed the little excursion that sort of applies to both prediction and also this way of thinking about uncertainty also applies to estimates. But I'm really going to have to do another show on estimates per se because uh, I can't fit it in today. This has been All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, the podcast, which is about product management and occasionally apparently a bit of sports. For show notes and links to the resources I mentioned in the episode, including Doug Hubbard's great book, How to Measure Anything, Go to alltheresponsibility.com slash 322. Share this podcast. Rate it on iTunes or star it on Overcast if you listen on Overcast. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye. We have ignition.